Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai, and I am thrilled to welcome back to our program, Minority Fellowship Program alumna Dr. Bridget Bronner-Rice for a conversation on the mental health impact of gun violence on youth and adolescents, particularly from ethnic and racial minorities in America today. Dr. Rice is the Richard and Marianne Kreider Endowed Professor in Nursing for Vulnerable Populations. She's also a staunch social justice advocate who believes that research can be leveraged as an advocacy tool to ensure all individuals have an opportunity to receive their full health potential. Dr. Rice, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Gun violence and what should be done about it is the subject of raging public debate in America today. Whenever a mass shooting event makes headline news, mental health is often flagged as the cause and providing better mental health care as the cure for the epidemic of killing. So my first question to you is, is gun violence a public health issue? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to address one thing because I think we have to be really careful in like public discourse and public narrative. When people say that mental health is the cause of gun violence, we want to be mindful that people who are dealing with different mental health concerns are not more violent than the general public, right? And so oftentimes yes. they go and they say, oh, the person was struggling with schizophrenia or they were depressed, right? And these are the things that happened. But that is at the uh, expense of vilifying people who are dealing with mental health concerns, right? When we know that when we look at the statistics of it, they are not more violent than other people in the population. Uh, But with that said, there are ways where different mental health conditions can contribute to gun violence, right? But they, again, are not more likely to be involved in gun violence than the general population. Uh, But to the point of whether or not it's a public health issue, absolutely anything, right, that affects population health, anything that causes someone to die years and even decades, right? Right before they would have passed away from other some other cause is something that we want to be mindful of as a nation, uh, and then as nurses in particular, when we think about our profession and our role as advocates, our role as caretakers, our role even if people you know everything in nursing is not about curing and life and health. Sometimes it is death, and how do we help people have you know beautiful deaths when that has to happen? Uh, but it is something that is uh, pivotal as a key concern in health and especially to nurses. Well, first of all, thank you for clarifying that point about mental health and being a a cause for gun violence. I want you to help us understand how broad or how big a problem it is. I've heard it described as an epidemic. What is the extent of it? Yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head by calling it an epidemic, you know, like even pandemic because other areas are facing it, other countries. But where we are with gun violence in the United States is embarrassing. You know, like you cannot sugarcoat it. It is quite shameful for us to pride ourselves in being, you know, this developed nation and this wealthy nation and this nation with all of uh, this access and resources, right? And these things. And we still have children being gun down in the streets. We still have people going to elementary school and college and the gas station and sleeping at home in their beds and dying because a bullet pierces their skull or, you know, gets into another part of their body. Um, and so when we look at it, it's, it's, 
it, it is a public health epidemic because it is so pervasive and it's affecting so many different people. And the the interesting thing with gun violence compared to some of the other things that we face is there isn't just one thing that we can pinpoint that's causing it, right? It's, it's happening across systems, across different levels. There's politics, there's policy, there's individual behavior, right? Like there's uh, historical and structural issues that are driving it. And so because it's it's such a multifaceted problem. I think where we are falling short as a country is because we're trying to just like pick little aspects that we want to address, right? Like, so we'll go after this component of it, but at the expense of addressing something over here. And with it being an epidemic, we're going to have to throw multiple uh, strategies at this to try to address it because it's not just, you know, one camp will say, well, you know, guns don't shoot people, people shoot people. And so they put the on the individual. And is it true that, you know, let's say in something, if you're saying one person shoots another person, that you need an individual to take that action? Yes, that is true. But that doesn't exempt the fact that the gun got into their hands in the first place, right? It doesn't exempt the fact that even within them, there was either an impulse control issue or anger, right? Or um, racism, all the different things that happen within a person to cause them to do it. So there's multiple things that need to be addressed. In addition to, the fact that guns are so um, easily accessible. You know, we think we have gun control. We think we have policies that are um, keeping firearms out of the hands of the, you know, like quote unquote individuals who shouldn't have them, but that's not happening. And then you have the crime circuit, right? Where um, in specifically in racial and ethnic minoritized communities, um, the fact that a nine-year-old can go and purchase, you know, a firearm illegally, or the fact that you have these assault rifles, right? Right? Like high power uh, uh, arms that really only need to be used in battle, right? For like military strategy are on our streets, are in our schools where our children are trying to go and learn. Like this is just something where it's not only people, it's not only laws, it's not only policies. Um, it's all of those things coming together. And we each need to find a piece of it that we can tackle and address within our spheres of influence and within, you know, our areas of expertise so that we can really finally do something about it. Cause it's getting to the point, um, I don't want us to be lulled into apathy by seeing all of these deaths, right? If we look at the number of shootings that we've had this year alone, if we look at in our own families, right, for some of us, the people who we are losing and having to go to funerals because this is happening, it gets exhausting. And then, you know, from the psych perspective, as a defense mechanism, your brain, your body physically has to check out. Because if you stay tuned into that, the level of trauma is overwhelming and we wouldn't be able to function. And so it's scary to think that as a nation, we can come to the place where we would be numb, right, to all of this. That we would be numb to a three-year-old being shot in the head in the back of a car. That we would be numb to someone sitting on a college campus, you know, in class and being gunned down. We don't want to be numb to those things. So is it too late because sometimes it seems that we have reached that level where, you know, we are numb. Yes, we see these uh, stories once a week, it seems there's a mass shooting. Are people talking about it and, and reacting to it in a way that would force the stakeholders, the people who can do something about it, to take action? 
Yeah. So I'm an optimist. So I think, you know, I would never say we're too far or there's nothing that can be done or, um, you know, we're already in this apathetic state and we won't be able to get out of it. I think there's always room to improve things. And what makes me really excited, you know, so far, I feel like this has been our our doom and gloom segment. Right. But on the hopeful side, there are people who literally for decades have been fighting against this and have been able to make great strides in the communities where they're working in the areas of, you know, law and policy that they've been trying to impact. So I think we have that momentum uh, where people are, are starting to get to where they're saying enough is enough, right? Like thoughts and prayers, is it, we're not going to do enough. that anymore. Like what yeah. is the action? What are the steps that we are going to take? And what makes me even more excited, look at me, uh, right? As an example, mm-hmm. I started my career in HIV STI prevention, and I still mm-hmm. do that work. Uh, gun violence, I'm not a gun violence expert. I'm not a firearm injury prevention expert, right? But I have expertise in other methods um, that I am now working with people, you know, in these spaces to apply that. And so it has excited me to see people say, hey, you know what? I may not know how to do this, but you do. And I bring something to the table that you don't have. So let's work together, right? And like, see what we can do in our local community on a national scale, you know, with one family, whatever that unit of impact is going to be. But folks are really like, hey, we've got to rally and do something because enough is enough. So what are the mental health consequences of all of this that's happening, like the gun violence? There's, of course, the people who are shooting, and then there's the community around them, and the people who are listening or just observing from afar. If you could break it down for us, what the specific behavioral health consequences are, what is the impact, especially in communities of color? Yeah, and you really um, hit the nail on the head with how you set that up because sometimes we just think about the act itself. So um, the shooter and then the victim. Uh, But that is sort of like that most proximal, right? Like uh, the people who are directly affected in that event. Then you have anyone who has directly witnessed or experienced. um, So the people who are there on the scene, whether they're looking out a window or running for cover to hide behind a car, right? Then you have the ones who are hearing about it, either by word of mouth, watching the news, scrolling through social media. So that one act, it doesn't just affect the people who were there and involved, right? It has this ripple effect through the community. Um, And we are now seeing we're under so much trauma, right? That uh, you can just be trying to like leisurely surf the internet or scroll social media or, you know, watch a fun program. And then it's triggering because it's almost like every other soundbite is something about another shooting that's happening. And so what this does, it puts us under this mass sort of collective trauma, right, around this issue, which we know from a healthcare or, you know, physiology standpoint is wearing on our bodies. So we have data that show that this level of stress and trauma is changing us at the cellular level. Uh, We have data that show that there are, you know, not even just young people, but older adults across the lifespan. People are living in this state of hypervigilance where cortisol is up, telomeres are shortened, right? Like it is literally changing our quality of life. And I don't think any of us, even those of us working in these spaces, our minds 
cannot wrap around just how severely we're going to be impacted by all of this. So if we thought we were seeing health inequities before, I believe that things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, right, all the different types of heart diseases from stroke to high blood pressure, we're going to see more of that because we're as a nation experiencing this like intersection of all these different, you know, micro epidemics that are happening. So we have gun violence, we have COVID-19, we have this, you know, like heightened awareness of structural racism and all these other things that are happening. So that is wearing on the mind, which is in turn wearing on the body. And while we're working to address those issues, I love that we have our MFP family and others who are working in behavioral healthcare spaces because it is going to be on us to stop the bleeding, right? Like literally and figuratively. And so how are we as a behavioral healthcare system going to prepare ourselves to talk to, you know, the 13-year-old that watched their sibling be gunned down playing in a football game or to talk to the parent who has now, one woman lost five children, five children to gun violence and not in a single incident, not in one single mass shooting, but over years, five of her children gunned down, right? Like how, how do we support that mom, that father, you know, that grandparent, that kinship care provider. And so uh, we have a lot of work cut out for us. One of the thoughts that was going through my mind as I was listening to you was how different it is for young people who are growing up in the urban centers in the inner cities where some of the gun violence that you know might not make it onto CNN or the major national networks how much more are they affected and then if as you were referring earlier this is one of the underlying factors that might be causing increased uh, hypertension diabetes etc cetera, etc cetera, are you measuring how this rise in gun violence is then now uh, leading to increases in other health issues? So there are studies that are being done that are looking at um, community violence is uh, how that is termed, right? Like exposure mm -hmm. to community violence and how that affects the physical body, you know, what that does for things like cortisol and other markers of stress, and then how that then can lead to other um, adverse health outcomes, including, you know, heart disease, uh, diabetes, um, other metabolic conditions. So yes, those links and those ties are there. Um, as we look at this whole picture, though, I think we I would caution us against doing things just to describe them. Um, and so this would be sort of like my my challenge to us as researchers. There are things where, you know, we've we've taken people's hair samples and we've taken saliva samples and blood samples and we describe and we describe and we describe. And that's great because you do have to understand, uh, you know, the etiology of different things and epidemiology and all of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, because we are talking about people dying, right, because we are talking about lives being cut short, we don't want this to be something where we describe something for 20 years and then think about how we want to intervene in year 21. This is something now where we already have enough evidence from other health conditions that say when you are exposed to heightened levels of trauma, when your body is in this, you know, state of hypervigilance and hyperarousal, that is going to literally make you sick. It is going to shorten your lifespan, is going to put you at risk for these other 
other, you know, chronic health conditions. It's going to put you at risk even for suicide, right? So there's mental health things, uh, depression, anxiety that will be put at risk for as well. And so as we do these studies, I would challenge us to do them in an applied way where we're tying intervention in with it, right? And so like, as an example, if we know Let's let's look at the perspective of the individual for a moment. If we look at what it takes uh, for someone to pick up a gun and end the life of another person, there's multiple things that go into it, but I'll just deal with a few for now. The impulse that's involved with that, right? And then let's say the anger from whatever, either against the individual, against a group of people, from something else that happened that has nothing to do with this person, but now they're the one in front of you, and so they have to pay. If we can work and design interventions to help individuals better regulate their emotions, better regulate their impulse control, uh, better deal with conflict, right? Like having those more positive attitudes toward conflict resolution. Then if that individual does have access to a firearm, they have some tools now where they don't have to use that, right? Right. Okay. So how do you then make sure that in a community like, say, West Philadelphia, or you know, an urban community where you have a lot of gun violence, where you've had these generations of, several generations, where it's almost like a cycle where owning a gun and not just owning it, but acting out on it is seen as a measure of being a man or being you know, strong or powerful, where that impulse control you were referring to is it's not there. How do you make sure that everybody in that community gets that kind of uh, preventative program or action? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And I wish I had like a definitive response because then you and I would solve the gun violence crisis like right now, you know, in the midst of this hour long podcast. Uh, But what I do know is that what we're seeing is the process of centuries long issues in our country. Um, And and I'm going to do a soapbox for a minute and that's okay. And there will be people who will check out because they don't like to acknowledge the effects of slavery are still lasting now. You know, they'll say, oh, that was 400 plus years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. The the formalized institution of it was that long ago, but then the policies and the practices are still happening today. We have prison systems where Black men are hyper-incarcerated, right? Where they are disproportionately represented and Latino men as well in this carceral system still tying back to slavery. And so when you're what you were mentioning um, around, um, you know, the thought of like what it means to own a gun and use a gun, those are community norms. Uh, It's not just what the individual believes, but that's shaped by the community that that they're a part of. And when I say community, it's not just the geographical space that they live in, but it's going to be the people who they are talking with, engaging with, whether in person or online, right? Uh, My colleague, Dr. Robin Stevens, does work around digital neighborhoods and the effect of social media, particularly on young people. So those things matter. So how then do we go about tackling that? We have to have counter messaging that challenges those norms, right? Putting out positive messaging and imagery about what it means to be a man. Being a man doesn't mean that you have to earn your badge by having an incarceration history, right? Being a man doesn't mean that you have to carry a gun and anybody who says something wrong to you, you know, you got your hand on your hip telling them, 
what you're about to do. And so we as a community, and when I say community now, I speak uh, specifically for the monolithic, right? It's yeah, not a monolithic. Like, like yeah. We don't have this like monolithic black community, but I'm going to just use it for a second um, to say like we have to challenge our media, our Absolutely. music, Absolutely. our Instagram posts, right? Our celebrities, the messages that they're putting out there because what's being perpetuated, people are internalizing that. They are emulating that. They're looking up to that. So if we then um, counter that by saying, no, this is not what it looks like. It actually looks like this. Um, And I love, again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are groups all across the country where um, black men and Asian men and white men and Latino men and Indian men, right? Like, and women and, and, and transgender men and women, like, right? Like, across the spectrum, people are standing up to say, hey, we want you to live. Um, I know somebody in the Philadelphia area uh, started a campaign and it was like, make it home. And it was men challenging that norm of like, okay, so somebody says something to you, so what? They stepped on your shoe, so what? Make it home. It's not a punk to walk away. It's not a punk to, you know, like not engage in certain things because now it's not like, and I'll go into like my New York for a second, but it's not like when I was younger where you could just have a fair one, right? Like you do something, I do something we fight we go home now people don't want to fight anymore you know you're arguing over a parking space they shoot you through the glass you fight and you win they come back and shoot you while you're playing basketball so things are just different now we're trying to hold on to like what the quote unquote like ogs used to do right or like how things used to be we don't have those liberties anymore and so it's like i think if we can change the norms around how we handle conflict and change the norms around what it means to have street cred and for people to respect you, right? And all those other things, like be respected for bringing money into your community. Be respected for working on projects where, you know, you have this vacant building and you fix it up so that it could be a daycare center. Be respected for being actively involved in the lives of your children. Like those are the things, right? That bring respect and that bring prestige. But going back to that centuries old issue that is not how the system was set up for us it was set up to undermine the role of family it was set up to undermine the power of men right and like and what that dynamic looked like in families it was set up to undermine us even being able to come together to work on common goals you know you'll hear people say like oh well if like black people could get together and you know they could do this and they could have that we had those things And they were bombed. Like we literally had a black Wall Street. We literally had, you know, educational systems that were successful and all these other things, but they were attacked. And even to this day, it's not just something that was hundreds of years ago or decades ago. There are ways where the system that is failing us is doing what it was designed to do. And that's the part that's disheartening because people say the system is broken. It is actually not broken. It is doing what it was intended to do and is doing that on our backs. And so now, you know, we are in a position where it's just time to rise up and make a change. So saying that, that's, you know, my grandma would say you talk out of both sides of your neck. So like, that's the one side. On the other side, while those things are true, we can't, 
allow that to let us take a victim mentality, right? To where we say, oh, well, I don't have any responsibility because it's a result of slavery. We're thinking about, you know, our Native American community. That genocide and all that has happened, those things still matter. You know, Native Hawaiian, indigenous populations, when you look at health inequities and who's affected by things, how people's land was stolen, how they were mistreated, how they were caged, right? How they were decimated, that matters now. And so we're going to acknowledge that that matters. We need to put systems in place to address that those things matter. And at the same time, um, individuals from these groups, as we were affected, we have to step in and do things, but we can't do it by ourselves, right? And that's where like allyship and other ways of coming alongside come into play and not from a savior complex, but truly coming alongside, you know, these marginalized groups who have been affected to say, okay, I am here in solidarity with you. What do you need me to do, right? Like not delegating, but being delegated to because we didn't create the system that's right. failing us. Yeah. <laughs> like your people did. Like that system was created. And so like now come alongside so that we all collectively together can make a difference because guess what? Even if my skin doesn't look like your skin, what happens to me at the end of the day ultimately affects you. And if you don't believe that, look at the taxes that yeah. come out of your paycheck, right? Like our healthcare expenditures. Um, absurd in this nation what we spend. Um, and healthcare expenditures. And it doesn't have to be that way if we would focus on primary prevention, if we would focus on getting people the behavioral health services, right? Like that parity for behavioral health care that we need. How do you see the way that the behavioral health workforce has been responding so far? And what are the steps that now should be taken specifically for nurses? Yeah, no, excellent questions. I think um, as a system, there has been a really good job of trying to get services outside of the brick and mortar institutions. And I think the pandemic really showed the need and the success of telehealth, telemental health services, uh, because there are just for multiple reasons, individuals who are never going to set foot into a behavioral health care provider, whether that be stigma, whether it be, you know, um, a parent doesn't have time to take off work to take a child to go for therapy or transportation issues, right? Like there's so many reasons why people may not make it in the quality of care that they receive if they're not, you know, um, respected by the, the front desk staff or if they don't have that therapeutic alliance with the provider that they would see. And so, you know, there's a lot of challenges that would get people from coming into the system. And I think um, behavioral health care as a whole has seen that and has tried to do a better job um, of not only getting out there, but through programs like the MFP, diversifying the workforce. Because again, that racial and ethnic conclusion Accordance. Um, everything doesn't hinge on that. So just because I am a black woman, it doesn't mean I would have to have a black woman provider. Um, if a provider doesn't look like me, but shows that they care, right, and, and they can understand where I'm coming from and they can help me, then I can work with that person. But a benefit of diversifying the behavioral health force through the MFP is that now you have individuals who maybe have these um, lived experiences that are similar, right? Or um, they may have walked in the shoes of a person and so it just, things flow a little bit more naturally when you feel like someone gets you and they understand you. And so I think that investment 
um, from multiple entities, you know, SAMHSA and others included, has been key in making sure that we have like bodies in the seats to do this work. Um, Moving forward, the level of need in our nation has far exceeded what we have the capacity to cover. You know, if we think to before the pandemic where we were, our system was already strained to provide care for the people who needed it. Now with the added level of stress, trauma, you know, grief, loss, like the things that the pandemic has brought, People need services, but are waiting three months, four months, five months, six months out to get scheduled to see a provider. Imagine being suicidal and that happens, right? Um, And so where I would love to see the work move forward and when I can sit still long enough um, and considering, you know, extending our work to get into this as well um, is preparing lay community members to help buffer and support the behavioral health workforce. So we know um, that for individuals who have been traumatized, positive encounters with just one person, so a single encounter with one person can change somebody's trauma trajectory. Doesn't have to be multi-sessions. That can come down the road and that's still going to be needed. But in that three months that they're waiting, right, to see a provider, what if they could talk to someone who lives in their neighborhood, right? Uh, But we're in a position now where our community members don't have that knowledge and don't have that expertise. And so the program that we were recently a part of they had coaches who were doing a boxing program with youth and the coaches were like, hey, like we were doing this trying to prevent gun violence, but they have some behavioral health things going on that we don't even know how to manage. You know, like one coach noticed that um, a young person was like uh, gaining a bunch of weight and they didn't know what was going on. Come to find out the young man was dealing with depression, you know, or another one, the sibling was murdered. Like, how do you then support the person in dealing with that, right? And so if we can equip community members by, you know, there's standardized trainings that are available. There's youth mental health first aid, um, psychological first aid. There's all of these programs that exist. But when we don't know about that, we don't know where to send people. And so I think as a system, we can also do a better job of partnering with places that people already go, partnering with schools, partnering with the faith community, partnering with recreation centers, right? Like YMCAs, all of these different things so that we can say, hey, we're here for you. We support you. I love this. This is thinking outside the box. So once we've screened and you've touched on the challenge of having enough providers, but once somebody has accessed care, what kind of care are they typically getting? And uh, I'm looking at a question that was posed by Dr. Deborah Prothrostith. One of the questions that she suggests that healthcare should be looking at when trying to address this is how do we help children who are hurt either because they're victims of violence or they're witnessing violence, especially domestic violence or gang violence on a regular basis? How do we help them heal from the anger, the guilt, the pain, and then provide them strategies to move forward? Yeah. Are nurses, is the behavioral health workforce equipped right now to do this? Are they able to help them move forward? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I would say I do not think we're equipped right now. So um, when we think about what happens when someone comes in for treatment, the way that therapy works, uh, it's pretty much at the discretion of that provider, right? And so there are people who either practice as part of a group practice with other people, or they may have hung their own shingles. And so they have their own independent practice. And depending on uh, what like modality that person was trained in, so like, are they doing systems therapy? Are they doing doing, you know, more like cognitive behavioral strategies. There's so much diversity in how we can treat people um, that if someone has not had training in these evidence-based strategies, so I'll name two in particular, trauma-focused CBT um, is really powerful and effective. And some people may just be doing cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's what CBT is. While CBT is good, there are elements that need to be added in specifically for people who are dealing with different traumas. And so if you have not had that training, um, you know, and that's just like one type of therapy that you can do. But if you have not specifically gone through intensive training to work with individuals who have experienced trauma, you may not be able to as effectively meet their needs as someone else who has. Um I'm thinking about another one like dialectical behavioral therapy for like uh, youth who have different like emotional and behavioral health concerns. There's just ways where we have to better match the strategies that we're providing to the lived experience of the clients that we're working with. And if I don't come from a similar background or similar lived experience, I may not understand, right, the nuances of what's needed. And so I'm telling you, I want you to journal about your feelings. And you're like, I don't even want to process my feelings because it's too painful. So I'm not going to journal, right? Like how do we then come up with something else um, that gets you active so that you can release those feelings and emotions? So I think we, um, as a system, also have to look at what type of therapy providers are um, offering to their clients and then ensure that they have access to these additional tools and resources that are specific, um, that are trauma-informed, right? Like we have this whole uh, wave now of trauma-informed care. And so we want to make sure that our behavioral health care is similarly trauma-informed and including medications in that as needed. I think... um, for psychiatric mental health, uh, medications have been stigmatized for so long and there's fears and there's concerns and rightly so because of, you know, historical injustices that have taken place, but helping people to understand that sometimes you do need that medicine because the chemistry of your brain, right, has literally been altered. We see this. The function and structure of brains are altered by things that people are experiencing. And so medications, in addition to talk therapy, uh, might be needed strategies for some people. Coming back to your presentation at the Promoting Health Equity Through Nurse Science Pathways and Partnerships Symposium uh, held by Howard University and NYU, uh, you spoke about challenging our tunnel vision focus of what constitutes nursing research and how we define ourselves as scholars. So as a closing, uh, Dr. Rice, and in an optimistic, positive note, if you could please share with us how you think nurse scholars can make a difference when it comes to addressing gun violence. Yeah, I think, and and 
for reasons at the time, historically, nursing research was synonymous with clinical research. So it was you were doing uh, research in hospitals with patients, dealing with biomarkers, right, like things uh, related to the individual. And there were nurses operating in other spaces. uh, But clinical research to the public eye is what made sense for nursing research. But when we think about it, anything that affects health. So there are economic policies that affect health. There are public health you know, crises that affect health. And so any area where something is affecting health or nursing education, right, or nursing practice, like there's multiple levels of what nursing science and scholarship looks like. And so I just encourage and challenge us as nurse researchers to think outside of the box about even what the work that we do is about and the lanes, quote unquote, right? Like the areas that we're able to operate in because there would be people, you know, even when I was doing my HIV STI work, they're like, well, how is that nursing research and not public health research? And I'm like, we're not going to split hairs. I'm a nurse. I'm doing nursing science. I'm approaching it from a nursing lens and that makes it nursing research. So gun violence as an issue, it affects population health. It affects whether or not an individual lives or dies or has to live with, you know, a disability that they didn't have before. And so as nurses, I think we can uh, sort of like reconceptualize and reframe what our scholarship looks like and then take the knowledge, the skills, the expertise, the influence, the resources that we have from other areas and apply them to pressing topics. And that doesn't mean, you know, like right now, I don't consider myself to be a gun violence researcher or a firearm injury prevention researcher. I am a health equity Researcher, So any issues that involve inequity or injustice or health, you know, I'm able to sort of like pivot and respond to. And it doesn't mean that I have to lead those teams. So even for us as nurses to start thinking more strategically about who do we need to be partnered with, right? And like for other disciplines to realize what we're able to do as nurse scientists and nurse scholars and inviting us to the tables, working with urban planners, right? Working with economists, working with engineers, right? Like going uh, transdisciplinary where it's not just medicine and psychology and social work. We need to keep those going, But again, these issues such as gun violence that we're trying to tackle are so much bigger than just the health sciences. We want to be at the tables and have those individuals uh, at tables with us as well. And I'm really excited because as of June 1st, I will be the new associate dean for research and innovation at Villanova's College of Nursing. And so to be in that position and to have these equity and justice, you know, lenses that I have, I'm really excited for what that's going to mean for our college to be able to, you know, support my colleagues who are already working in these spaces or who are looking uh, to venture more into equity and justice work, but then also like what it'll mean for nursing as a discipline um, to have, you know, more people in positions of power, authority and influence who get these issues of equity and justice. And so I think that will also help us redefine and reimagine who we are as nursing scholars. And with that, thank you so much for giving us the gift of your time and your wisdom. Thank you for having me. It's truly been a pleasure. And I just love, you know, that the MFP is doing this. It's a great way to get information out, talk to people, and also learn. So for those who are listening, as you see it, I hope that you would, you know, put comments or ask questions. And I look forward to keeping the dialogue going. Absolutely. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. 
This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.